Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first part of Sigdom's uh, seminar series on The Legend of Sigrid and Gudrun by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, the seminar is being held by Dr. Carl Edlund Anderson, who's got a really quite a diverse academic portfolio. He's done, he does a language <laughs> teacher training. He does South American indigenous linguistics, uh, and also perhaps most relevantly for the moment, uh, Germanic and Scandinavian philology. So he'll be taking us all through um, Tolkien, Sigurd, and Gudrun, and uh, walking us through a lot of the uh, the, the Scandinavian and uh, Germanic background of, of this story, body of legends that Tolkien was reworking. And there should be something like 20 to 30 minutes of questions-ish thereabouts, we'll see how it goes, um, at the end. So um, I, think, uh, I think that's it. The stage is yours. Uh, welcome everyone. Um, as the title of the seminar says, uh, this seminar series, um, it's to discuss the book, The Legend of uh, Sigurd and Gudrun uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Christopher Tolkien. Um, the book was published in 2009, but most of its contents date from the early 1930s. Not before. Um, that's a little longer than the gap, uh, a little longer gap between the writing of the text and the publication um, than is normal, um, but only a little. Um, anyway, now that we have it, the main features of the book, let me see if I can hopefully get up a slide that shows you a summary of what's in the book there, which hopefully you can see. Um, the main features of the book are two narrative poems um, telling a story uh, based on what is known as the Volsung Niblung cycle of legends. And Tolkien wrote these poems while he was a professor of Old English, but also of Old Norse, they're Old Norse poems, uh, or they're based on Old Norse poems, uh, while he was professor at uh, Oxford University in the 1930s. So the book as published also contains a few other poetic fragments written by Tolkien in both modern and old English on related topics. And there is a good deal of commentary by the book's editor, J.R.R.'s son, Christopher, um, dealing with his father's poems and the medieval sources on which they were based. Um, and these incorporate some material drawn from Tolkien's lecture notes. Um, on on these uh, on the legends and related topics, uh, particularly dealing with Old Norse literature, um, that Tolkien had composed some English language alliterative poetry modeled on the style and meter, and also the subject matter of certain Old Norse legendary poems was almost completely unknown until a few brief references to these works in his personal correspondence was published in Humphrey Carpenter's edited collection of letters in 1981. And Thereafter, basically nothing more was known about it until um, the publication of The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun in 2009. Um, and what little was known was that perhaps um, these, the, what was eventually published in the book dealt with the Volsung Nibling cycle of legends. Now, um, some of you may be wondering, what are the Volsung Nibling legends, which is really the, the subject matter for Tolkien's poems here? Um, well, these are an interconnected 
um, and indeed tangled body of stories that seem to have been well known in medieval Scandinavia and Germany um, and were uh, indeed making sure my slides are still working there, um, were indeed still uh, somewhat known in the medieval English-speaking, or rather old English-speaking world. Um, but though versions of these legends, the Volsung Nibelung legends, remained current in Scandinavia, particularly through the ballad tradition well into modern times, and seem to have remained at least somewhat known in what is now Germany into at least the early modern period, they kind of dip below the literary horizons of the English-speaking world after the Viking Age or the Norman Conquest, in any case, in the 11th century AD. Um, that is, until their rediscovery in the 19th century, uh, particularly through their medieval Scandinavian forms, which thrust them back into the eye of Victorian-era Britain, which had something of an appetite for not just all things Anglo-Saxon, but also for the hideous mead of all things Viking and, let's not beat about the bush, all things pan-Germanic. Um, it was only in the 19th century, after all, that philologists' labors were uncovering the relationships between many languages and language families, um, including what we now recognize as the Germanic language family, uh, which includes English, German, and the Scandinavian languages. And the social and political spirits of that time were very keen on roots and beginnings, uh, legitimizing the primal glories of what were back then often quite new or still emerging nation states. And the realization that the Volsung Nibling cycle of legends had been known amongst the early medieval ancestors of both German, Scandinavian, and apparently even English speakers made it very attractive to those, and there were many, who sought, for better or for worse reasons, ancient cultural connections between speakers of Germanic languages. Uh, however, as, so anyway, um, hopefully uh, you heard what I was just saying. The um, people were thinking of the Volsung Nibling cycle as a kind of national epic, especially a um, some parts of it were considered German national epic. It was considered kind of a pan-Germanic national epic, but it doesn't actually make a terribly good um, national epic. Um, there's not very much nationalistic about it, um, because actually nationalism was an obsession of the 19th century, and indeed our own, but not so much of, say, the 9th century. Certainly um, not in the way that we know it now all too well, anyway. Um, but still, these legends attracted a great deal of attention from scholars, philologists, of course, um, but also to an extent from the man or woman on the street, or at least people who were trying to reach the man or woman on the street. Um, for example, the uh, Volsung Nibling legends were packaged into books for school children. Um, in his childhood, Tolkien himself had been an enthusiastic reader of a much bowdlerized uh, rendition of the Volsung Nibling cycle in Andrew Lang's Red Fairy book, published in 1890. And that children's adaptation was itself based on what was, in fact, the first translation into English of Volsunga Saga, which one of the main medieval Scandinavian sources for the legend, that translation by William Morris and the Icelander Erik Magnusson in 1870. 
Tolkien eventually read that translation of the saga as a teen and indeed later bought a copy of it with prize money he had won uh, as an undergraduate student. And then a little after that translation was made, then in 1877, William Morris published his own version of the legends in a massive modern English epic poem. Um, this, was, uh, this poem was also known to Tolkien. And then, of course, um, the Volsung Nibelung legends um, also formed the basis of Richard Wagner's ring operas composed during the mid-19th century and first performed in the 1870s. Um, Tolkien knew of these, of course, and C.S. Lewis was, in fact, uh, something of a fan, I think, but Tolkien was not. And then moving into the 20th century, in the 1920s, Fritz Lang's film versions of these legends had appeared as well. I think you can probably watch those on YouTube nowadays, I should think. But then Tolkien worked on his own poetic versions of the Volsung Nibelung legends in, we believe, um, the early 1930s. Um, a time when romanticized Germanic nationalism was being taken to a, uh, a somewhat horrified, uh, horrifying extreme in Nazi Germany. Um, Tolkien's disparaging views of Nazism and what he saw, saw as its perverted take on the cultures and values of the pre-modern Germanic-speaking peoples is well known. You can read more about what he said in the volume of Tolkien Letters edited by Humphrey Carpenter. And perhaps the social and political environment at the time he was writing his poems even had some influence on his abandonment of them, um, though I think, as we'll discuss, there are a number of other reasons as well. But it's also true in any case that as a creative writer, um, Tolkien was, during this period in the early 1930s, moving further away from his experiments with reworking uh, medieval or traditional material in modern English. If you missed some of the slides, we've so far had some slides just summarizing the content of the published Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun book. Um, just a few slides just showing the, the first pages of uh, uh, Andrew Lang's Red Fairy book and um, the Volsunga saga translation by Morris and Magnuson um, from which that was adapted. And then the first page of uh, of the poems. I really can't see these questions very well. Let's see if I can make them bigger. Okay. Uh, I don't have enough room to make questions bigger. Let's see if I can get rid of some of the bits and pieces if I blow away some of the other bits here. All right. So there's, um, there's some of the slides. I think Nelson's showing them now. Um, Nelson, you can probably jump ahead. Just, you can probably just, um, cycle through um, the slides up to to number six. Um, any of them will do. They're just pictures of the, the books or a few pictures of from the 19th century of uh, Wagner's uh, Ring Opera as it was uh, envisioned as being uh, shown and then a, a still from one of the Fritz Lang films. Nothing very profound there. Um, it'll get more useful when we get on to talking about the medieval sources. Um, yeah. 
So there's um, there's the front pages from um, some of the background, some of the versions of these legends that were available when Tolkien was growing up and would have been known to other people as well. And Nelson, if you go to the next slide, there'll be you know a slide, a picture of, uh, there we go. Um, uh, an imagination of what uh, Wagner's ring opera um, should have been looking like, and then um, a still from Fritz Lang's films and theories. Yeah, I can leave those or put the, the slide with the book titles there. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, there are two versions. I guess one of them is probably US and one of them is UK. I'm not sure which is which. Um, but in any case, um, at this time when he was working on these poems as a creative writer in the 1930s, he was moving further away from his experiments with reworking the medieval traditional material in modern English and focusing more on his own original creations. Um, though, of course, his creations were likewise shot through with influences from that medieval and traditional material. Um, Tolkien had already written his own version of the finished story of Colervo in 1914 or 1915. Um, there was a seminar um, not so long ago from Signum where uh, Verlin Flieger talked about that. Uh, and of course, much of the material that Tolkien developed for his Middle Earth mythology and his legendarium was um, that which we know somewhat loosely as the Silmarillion. Um, this was especially in its original versions, very closely inspired by medieval and traditional material, especially Norse, although he moved away from the explicit uh, connections a bit later on. Um, however, Tolkien was working on his own Volsung Nibelung poems at around the same time he was drafting The Hobbit, which is a very different kind of work, not originally intended to be part of his Middle-earth mythology, um, though it did eventually find itself connected to it. Uh, and then the creation of the Lord of the Rings in subsequent decades um, pretty much um, welded his new original fiction to the world-building mythology that he had begun in previous decades. Tolkien's experiments with recasting medieval legends into modern English did not absolutely end with his poems on the Volsung Nibelung material. He began, but then abandoned unfinished, um, the Fall of Arthur poem in the later 1930s. But by that time, Tolkien increasingly had other creative fish to fry. Um, but back to the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun. In these seminars, we're going to first, in today's session, take an overview of the medieval sources and a necessarily brief discussion of their complicated relationships. Um, then we'll start to look at the overall plot of the legends, um, especially if we haven't lost too much time messing around with the slides. Um, from the point of view of Tolkien's poetic versions of them, but linking them back and forth with their medieval inspirations along the way. And also looking occasionally at some echoes of ideas from the Volsung Nibelung legends in Tolkien's fictional works, both predating and postdating the composition of the Sigurd and Gudrun poems themselves. And I think that will actually probably keep us busy through all the time available in these three seminars. Um, I think we could easily build a whole course exploring Norse and Germanic legend and mythology through Tolkien and his take on the Volsung Nibelung legends. Indeed, this is really such a rich combination of topics that I need to acknowledge. We cannot possibly cover everything relevant or related to this legend of Sigurd and Gudrun in this seminar series. So I'm essentially going to highlight things that occur most readily to me, but I hope that any of you with other particular interests or questions will sing out either as we go along, although it's 
really difficult to see the questions um, coming along here. Um, hopefully, we'll. But we'll be. Um, we'll. I'll try to make sure that we leave some space at the end of each of the sessions for the many, many possible questions and ideas that might arise from our exploration of these uh, materials. So. To get started then, um, what is the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun? What are the Volsung Nibelung legends? What were these stories about? Um, I'll try to offer a brief summary to orient us, but in a case like this, where there's a complicated web of interrelated stories evolving over a wide geographical area, passed amongst various dialects and languages through the course of at least a millennium and a half, well, it's virtually impossible to pin down a single canonical version of the story, the story. Um, but we can start with the written medieval versions that Tolkien and the other philologists uh, of his time knew well. Um, Nelson, if, if I could have the next slide, please. Um, there we go. Wonderful. This is working better now. So. Um, for the medieval versions, we can fairly reasonably talk about two main threads of tradition, which also happen to be distinguished by language, mostly, and geography. There is a generally Scandinavian set of traditions, and then there is a generally German or continental set of traditions. And they were all written down in the forms we know uh, around about the 13th century AD, at various points during that century, essentially. The Scandinavian traditions, talking about them, first highlighted there in blue on the slide, Scandinavian traditions were recorded in writing probably mostly in Iceland, though they clearly come from a tradition that in Scandinavia stretched back um, to at least the Viking Age. As mentioned, the stories from the Volsung Nibling cycle were later carried on um, by the Scandinavian ballad tradition into the 19th century. Um, arguably to the present day, but we are going to focus on the medieval versions written in the 13th century. Um, and there are basically three main sources here. Firstly, there are a number of Old Norse poems dealing with these legends that were collected together, along with various other mythological and uh, legendary poems in a single manuscript known as the Codex Regius around 1270 AD. In English, we now often refer to this manuscript, sometimes together with related materials as either the Poetic Edda, or as Tolkien refers to it in his notes, the Elder Edda. Um, the meter and style of Tolkien's modern English poems published in the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun are based on the meter and style of these so-called Eddic Old Norse poems. However, these poems vary greatly in age and origins, um, and as Tolkien himself noted, and um, I quote here, much of the material thus arranged in um, the Poetic Edda is of the utmost difficulty. Poems are disordered or defective or even patchworks of different origin altogether, and there are very many obscurities of detail while worst of all, the fifth gathering of the Codex Regius, that's a section of the manuscript that probably contained about 16 pages. Um, quoting again, the fifth gathering of the Codex Regius disappeared long ago with the loss of all Edaic poetry for the central part of the legend of um, Sigurd, that is of the Volsung Nibelung legends. 
We can, however, make some relatively educated guesses about what might have been in those missing pages, thanks to another principal Scandinavian source, an Old Norse prose text known as Volsungasaga. Uh, this saga was probably written slightly before the Codex Regius collection was compiled, but the saga seems to have been largely based on poems that were at least pretty similar to those um, that we know through the Codex Regius. The compositor of Volsunga saga pretty clearly tried to harmonize these complicated and sometimes contradictory narratives that were found in the poetic sources, but perhaps not completely successfully. A younger Tolkien read Volsunga Saga, or at least its translation, with enthusiasm, but a older and more demanding Tolkien found it rather wanting as literature, and he thought its main value was in how it reflected the poetic sources, particularly those that had been otherwise lost. Still, Volsunga Saga is certainly the most extensive and detailed medieval source for these legends, and Tolkien's own poems actually follow the plot of Volsunga Saga in many respects. Then there is a third main Scandinavian source for the Volsung Nibelung uh, material. It's a relatively brief prose summary of the narrative in an Old Norse text um, known as the Prose Edda. Um, this was really a kind of textbook on old-style Norse poetics. It's generally attributed to a famous Icelandic writer, poet, and politician named Snorri Sturluson, and so the prose edda is also sometimes called um, Snorri's edda. Um, this version of the legends in the prose edda also helps throw some further light on the missing Eddic poetry, um, as well as on some other details. Um, besides these three main sources for the medieval Scandinavian traditions of the Volsung Nibling cycle, there are also some references, some Scandinavian references or uses of the story in, in other parts of medieval Scandinavian literature, including some Viking Age poetry. Um, these are interesting and relevant. Um, we'll probably return to some of them at least briefly in later discussion. I think, but Tolkien, when working on his own poems, was probably thinking mostly about these three main medieval Scandinavian sources we just discussed, um, and especially Volsunga Saga. Um, now, if we could have the next slide, please. Uh, should have really asked for this slide earlier when we were talking about the Eddic poems. So that's a, a picture of the Codex Regius, the manuscript that contains the Eddic poems. Um, can you, can you jump ahead again, Nelson? There's a couple of slides which probably I should have brought up if I was controlling them. But So um, those that's a list of the relevant poems in the Codex Regius or the, the Elder Edda, and there's a little line there where there's a missing section. That's the big missing section of the, uh, the poems that would really tell us more about what's going on. If you can jump ahead again, Nelson. That's the Volsunga Saga manuscript. Not much really to to say about it. Um, it's from the mid 1200s. If you can pass ahead again, um, Snorri's Edda. Just a little picture there. Perhaps you can you can move on again. All right. Now we're going to talk about the um, the main German or continental sources. So Tolkien was certainly also familiar with these, um, and he did make some use of them particularly towards the end of his poems. Um, this tradition, the German or continental tradition, is represented to us principally by the poem known as the Nibelungenlied, um, written in Middle High German, probably in Austria and probably around 1200. 
and thus slightly before the main Scandinavian versions were being written down. Ah, thank you, Nelson. Uh, the Nibelungen lead manuscript there, it's the C manuscript, I think, which is the, the one people um, mostly use. Um, then there are also some uh, other various later German sources that reuse, reinvent um, elements of the legends, and these may sometimes preserve evidence of earlier or alternative continental variants. Um, the most important of these is probably the marvelously titled Das Lied vom Hohen Seyfried, the Song of Horny Seyfried, um, that doesn't mean what you might think it does. It refers to his skin being invulnerable to weapons. But anyway, um, there is then another source of information about the continental traditions, but one that is written in Old Norse. Thank you again, Nelson. Yeah, you're reading my mind. Um, this is Thiedrich Saga of Bern. Uh, it's essentially a Norwegian translation of a melange of tales from Northern Germany, um, and it includes a version of the Volsung Nibelung cycle. Now, although this version in Thiedrich Saga is mostly made up of continental traditions, some details seem to have leaked through from the Norse translator's familiarity with the distinct Scandinavian versions. Um, Thiedrich Saga was probably made during the early or mid 13th century, and it probably predates most of the written Scandinavian versions we had mentioned previously, and there are in fact some details in Volsunga Saga which are thought to derive from Thidric Saga. So although we have um, these two broad um, or variant um, traditions, um, oops, lost my picture of the slide we're looking at. We have these two broad variant traditions, the Scandinavian, the continental, and we cannot entirely separate them as they seem to have been in communication with each other, at least during the 13th century when they were be, being variously written down and probably before that too. Um, too often we are tempted to treat medieval languages and cultures, especially in pre-literate periods, as if they were hermetically sealed away from each other. And this is sometimes because of chauvinistic nationalism. No one wants to admit that their ancient oral culture was influenced by other cultures. Um, and sometimes just because when there's nothing or little written that survives, it's very hard to know what was going on during the pre-literate period with much certainty. But with the Volsung Niebling legends, we can at least say that something was going on um, with the sharing of these stories between different regions and groups and languages well before our major written sources were created. Um, it also sometimes feels like we find elements from the later versions uh, of the legends in isolation, as if they had not yet been joined up to each other as we later see them. Um, for example, uh, Nelson, if you can go to the next slide, please. Ah, there we go, thank you. For example, in the, the Old English poem, poem Beowulf, um, which is at least a few centuries older than all the other sources we've just mentioned, if not more, um, there's a brief passage that presents a slightly different, perhaps more archaic version of part of the Volsung Niebling legends. Um, likewise, the Old English poem Widseath, again, at least a few centuries older than our main medieval sources, if not more. Um, Widseath makes brief reference to a particular set of characters that we recognize from the Volsung Niebling cycle, though perhaps significantly not to other sets of characters. So perhaps some bits of the medieval versions that we know in the sources we just discussed a few minutes ago had not yet been put together. It's hard to say. Um, 
some of the Volsung Nibelung characters also appear in uh, a separate cycle of legends focused on a character known as Walter of Aquitaine. We know these Walter legends mainly from a 9th or 10th century Latin epic poem called um, Waltharius, composed in Switzerland on the basis of popular continental Germanic traditions. But there are also fragments of an old English poem, uh, Valdera, from around um, the year 1000, that likewise mentions a few characters from the Volsung Nibelung cycle. Um, and in fact, perhaps because it is difficult to read, also contains one of the earliest examples of a form of the name Nibelung. Um, in any case, these Walter legends certainly passed from continental Europe to England. Um, they don't seem to have then made a jump to Scandinavia, um, but some episodes from the Walter legends do appear in the 13th century Thiedrich saga, um, likewise translated from continental German traditions. Um, oh, I'm just seeing some of the questions popping up here. Um, Kaiden asks, does Volsunga saga include any sections of poetry from the Codex Regis? Um, or respectively from the last session, yes. Um, the uh, Volsunga Saga is our only guide to what was probably in the lost poems, but it's difficult to reconstruct exactly what was in the lost poems because they're lost. Um, and Volsunga Saga is trying to synthesize a number of, of different um, sections. It's, um, that's, it's a good question. So Tolkien, that's why Tolkien thought Volsunga Saga wasn't really great literature, but it was useful insofar as it reflected what he thought was great literature that had been lost, or a section of great literature um, that had been lost. Um, anyway, returning to um, the the mix of traditions we find elsewhere, there's actually an even earlier than um, Beowulf or Ridsith or Waltharius, there's a little cluster of personal names recorded as having belonged to people in 8th or 9th century Bavaria that are suspiciously similar to the names of characters known from later versions of the Volsung Nibelung cycle, as if some version of at least part of the cycle had been popular there and then, and perhaps people had been naming their kids after the characters. But already in Tolkien's day, um, philologists had expended um, really quite extensive energies um, and efforts to disentangle the relationships between the different surviving versions of the legends. And by extremely careful um, and thoughtful comparisons of these different versions, they sought to reconstruct the earlier lost versions of stories and ideally work backwards to try to isolate an original version of the legend. And this is very much the kind of work that 19th and early 20th century philologists, such as Tolkien, performed with many kinds of texts and narratives, just as they did with languages, though it is the kind of thing that largely went out of academic fashion in the course of the Second World War. Um, such studies were, in the eyes of many, uh, it must be admitted, not entirely without reason, um, rather too closely connected to the kind of hyper-romanticized nationalist thinking that had contributed to or at least um, gone hand in hand with the rise of fascism and the war itself. And at the same time, there was a growing movement to study medieval texts and narratives and literary monuments as literary monuments of their times, uh, which is not a bad thing to do, and one which Tolkien himself argued for in his famous essay, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, though he may not have realized that appreciating a given story as a story rather than as a cracked reflection of earlier stories was a trend that would steer the general scholarly study of medieval literature further away from the kind of philological work that he loved. 
Um, that kind of traditional philological study of the legends did not completely stop, but it became increasingly rare and disregarded. Um, perhaps the most recent major work on the Volsung Niebling legends, thank you, Nelson, was um, Theodore Anderson's, uh, no relation to me, um, Theodore Anderson's book, The Legend of Brynhild, which is shown there on the slide, um, from about 1980, almost 40 years ago. Um, for those of you who are interested, you can probably find copies of Anderson's book without too much pain, used copies, um, and it provides an admirable summary of much of the major work of German-speaking philologists from the early 20th century, which can be useful if you're not very comfortable with early 20th century academic German, uh, and of course also Anderson's very own significant advances on those studies. But even Anderson couldn't get past the fact that we have what look like two rather different versions of the character of Brynhild, whom we'll come to talk about more in subsequent sessions. Um, she doesn't get a mention in Tolkien's titles, but Anderson thought she was the central character of these legends. And for another thing, although Anderson didn't dwell on it as much, it's also very hard to pin down a single origin for the character of Sigurd, or Siegfried, as he is similarly, but in fact, distinctly named in the German tradition. And perhaps this is because, though the goal of philologists a century ago was very much the identification of a single original source version, such a single source might not have actually existed, at least in the case of the medieval Volsung Nibelung cycle. It may well be that elements of originally quite different origins, some ancient and mythological, some perhaps based on actual early medieval historical events, as we'll discuss in future sessions. Um, all these aspects and elements were coming together, sometimes slightly different ways and different times as various poets and writers and tellers of tales attempted to weld them into a more coherent, but also more complicated set of narratives, much as we see in the 13th century sources. Um, in other words, we would not have so much a nice neat tree diagram, kind of a family tree, showing multiple versions of the story emerging from a single source, but rather more of an evolving tangle over time. Um, still, now that we've talked about um, this thing a bit, the Volsung Niebling cycle of legends and its sources, quite a bit, you may still quite reasonably be wondering, well, what's it all about? What's the story? Um, that's a question with a still quite complicated answer, though Tolkien certainly came up with his own fairly particular answer. Um, but before we look at what Tolkien did with these stories, we can at least sketch out the main, thank you again, Nelson, um, the main elements of the shared plots between the various medieval versions. Um, at their core, the narratives of the medieval Volsung Nibelung legends deal with themes also well represented in other examples of literature from the early Germanic speaking world. There are tensions between loyalty to blood kin, kin by marriage, and political allies, and how these kinds of tensions can lead to violence and tragedy. Um, but here in short form is how essentially the Volsung Nibelung cycle of legends went down. Um, a hero comes to town. Um, in this case, the town is the stronghold of the Burgundians, often identified with the city of Worms uh, on the River Rhine in what is now southwestern Germany. The hero is named Sigurther in the um, Scandinavian sources. 
I'm usually going to refer to him as Sigurd, the slightly anglicized version of Tolkien. But his name, um, Sivrit or Siegfried or some variation on that in Germany. The Scandinavian and German versions of the names, as we've said, are similar, but they're not actually etymological cognate matches. They're different names. Um, also, the Scandinavian Sigurdr is heavily equipped with, and at least Volsunga Saga, a considerable backstory that we'll begin discussing later, um, including descent from the god Odin. There's a, a large prequel saga about Sigurd's immediate ancestors, his dalliances with Valkyries, the slaying of a dragon, um, by which deed he acquired a great treasure that had been previously owned by dwarves. Um, the German sources, however, are a bit more uncertain about their Siegfried's past. Um, yes, he has somehow acquired a great treasure from some dwarves, but any dragon slaying seems to have been perhaps separate and is only briefly alluded to in, in the Nibelungenlied anyway. Um, we may well wonder whether the Scandinavian German heroes do not have at least partially distinct origins, similar but different. Um, more of this later. But in any case, a hero acquires a great treasure and comes to town. Then the trouble really begins. The leader of the Burgundians, uh, Gunnar in Scandinavia with the cognate name Gunther uh, in Germany, wants to acquire as a bride a lady with a rather Amazonian disposition. She's called Brunhild in Scandinavia and has a similar cognate name in Germany. Uh, again, I'll usually refer to with this slightly anglicized Scandinavian version, Brynhild. Um, but winning Brynhild presents various challenges, and Gunnar, um, though he is a pretty mighty hero, he's simply not mighty enough to meet those challenges. But Sigurd is, and thus it is arranged that he impersonates Gunnar in order to win Gunnar Brynhild. You can see where this is starting to probably all go wrong. Um, Sigurd achieves this, but the circumstances and even the question of whether the hero Sigurd may or may not have met or indeed been involved with Brynhild at some point before winning her for Gunnar is handled differently in the different versions of the legends. Um, also, though the details, again, vary in different versions, Sigurd acquires from and or gives to Brynhild a ring in the process of winning her for Gunnar. You would think that he would then later sort this detail out with Gunnar to complete the deception, but for whatever reason, he doesn't. Sigurd himself then marries Gunnar's sister, named Guthrun in Scandinavia, um, but Kriemhild in Germany. For whatever reason, Sigurd then gives her, or alternatively tells her about the ring he either gave to or took from Brynhild, while disguised as Gunnar. You can see this is getting worse and worse. Uh, Gudrun and Brynhild then quarrel over the relative merits of their respective husbands. Um, Gudrun's ace up her sleeve is that she has or knows about the ring that Sigurd got or gave to Brynhild. Gudrun then displays this, um, or reveals it in some way to show that her brother Gunnar was not actually sufficiently heroic to win Brynhild, um, and it was in fact Sigurd who did this in disguise, so Sigurd is the best, yay I win. But no, of course, doom. Um, Brynhild is mortified, not to say really angry. Um, she has been tricked and depending on the particular version of the story, perhaps quite horribly abused. Um, one way or another, she then engineers the assassination of Sigurd. Now, 
it is precisely this whole bizarre love polygon portion of the story that has disappeared with the missing section of the Scandinavian Eddic poems. And none of the other Scandinavian or continental versions can agree on exactly what happened. Um, it's really a question of how stupidly or indeed abhorrently Sigurd has behaved towards Brynhild and um, particularly whether or not he had met her and or betrothed himself um, or otherwise been involved with her at some point before the charade of impersonating Gunnar to win her for Gunnar. Um, and that he may have done so, that he may have known uh, or invo been involved with Brynhild in some way is either stated or implied in a number of the different versions. And this whole question or problem was considered so critical because they all disagree with each other, the different versions, um, to any understanding of the story that 19th century German philologists who agonized extensively over this dubbed it the Königsproblem, um, the king problem, or as we might rename it um, in contemporary English, the the mother of all problems. Um, who did what to whom, how many times, when. Um, one of the major issues for Tolkien in writing his version of the story and his poems was deciding what his answer to this problem would be. In any event, Sigurd winds up dead and Brynhild likewise exits the story in one way or another. Um, she might die, um, kill herself, or she just disappears, for example, essentially from the German version. But that's not the end. There's still more to tell about Gudrun, uh, or Kriemhild in the German version. Um, Gudrun remarries a king of the Huns, whose name is derived from that of the famous historical Attila the Hun. Then, for one reason or another, the Scandinavian and continental traditions diverge on the motivations. Um, her brother Gunnar and his followers then go to visit the Hunnish stronghold, where hostilities break out and they are annihilated in battle. And in some versions, the Hunnish king also perishes. Gudrun may, or Kriemhild, may at this point also die herself, or she may get strung along for a few further adventures. But in any case, this is where the plot elements broadly shared amongst all the major Scandinavian and German versions, and indeed in Tolkien's poems, end. <laughs> um, just, I'm trying to catch up with some of the questions here for moving on. Yeah, Shakespeare probably would have made a uh, great hay from, from all this. Uh, it would have been a good tragedy. Uh, does this Gunnar have any connection with the Gunnar and Njalsa? Do they just have the same name? No, they just have the same name. It was a relatively common name. I think probably in in the time of Njalsaga or the period in which Njalsaga is set, which is the early 11th century, um, quite probably the legendary Gunnar would have been pretty familiar to most Scandinavians. So if you heard somebody who's named Gunnar, you might think of it, but it's a, I don't think there's a direct connection there. Um, I'll try to, I can only see this little tiny section of the questions on my screen. I have a tiny little laptop screen here. So um, make sure we try to come back and hit all the questions at the end, but I'm gonna move on now to, to get towards it. Um, so anyway, with that, that basic overview of the legends, although it still probably seems kind of complex, and it is, um, it should give you a rough idea of the story that's followed through all versions of the legend, um, including Tolkien's own uh, versions. A hero um, comes to town, he gets involved in a bizarre love polygon that results in his death. His widow remarries, but then gets involved in further conflict that sees the destruction of essentially all her remaining family. Now, if that's all there is at the core, you may actually now be wondering why someone like William Morris was enthusing that these legends were 
the grandest tale ever told and the great story of the North, which should be to all our race, I'm quoting, um, what the tale of Troy was to the Greeks. And we may especially wonder, perhaps somewhat uncomfortably, what Morris meant by our race. Um, he may have meant the English or the English-speaking world. He may have meant all Germanic-speaking peoples. Um, since there doesn't really seem to be very much fuel for nationalism in this plot outline, um, for all that the Nibelungenlied is still sometimes cited as a German national epic, um, and actually Morris himself virtually eliminated all references to ethnic groups or place names from his own poetic retelling. Really, in the legends that we have them, there's very little of national or ethnic things, let alone cosmic significance. And the stories focus on themes of love, conflicted loyalties, death, um, though admittedly it is all writ quite large as fairly epic love, conflicted loyalty, and death. The teenage Tolkien is reported to have enthused to his school's literary society that, I'm quoting again, there is no scene in Homer like the final tragedy of Sigurd and Brynhild. And even if the older Tolkien, pushing 40 when he was writing the poems, was less impressed with the version of the legend presented in uh, Volsunga Saga, he was still sufficiently enthusiastic to invest a very great deal of time and effort in writing his own lengthy version of the legend in modern English alliterative verse. But Tolkien definitely had more in mind than simply love, loyalties, and death, important though these remain to his version. Like his immediate 19th century predecessors, who likewise reworked the Volsung Niebling legends, um, William Morris, and perhaps more particularly, um, Richard Wagner, um, Tolkien wanted to tease a loftier, more cosmic theme out of them, though he would take a different approach than either Morris or Wagner, um, as we shall see. Um, we certainly don't have time to go through the medieval versions of the legends, all of them in very great detail, and then compare them to Tolkien. What we'll do is generally walk through the story, comparing back and forth between Tolkien's versions as published in the ledger of Sigurd, Sigurd and Gudrun, uh, his poems, and then also his medieval sources, especially the Norse versions on which Tolkien's own versions were principally based. Um, and most of that we'll have to cover in, in future sessions, obviously. Um, we have two more. Um, but we're, we can get a start on it, I think, uh, in, in this session. And when we do get a start on it, in doing so, when we start to look at the actual story that Tolkien told, we find right away one of the major differences between Tolkien and his sources, um, both in the narrative and in the overall theme, um, what the story was really about. As we've said in the German tradition, as represented by the Nibelungenlied, it opens up pretty directly with its hero, Siegfried, or Sivrid, um, coming to town to the Bur Burgundian stronghold of Wurms, with only a fairly sketchy reference to any of his prior adventures. The Scandinavian sources, however, um, particularly Volsunga Saga, provide a considerably more extensive backstory with a special focus on how their hero Sigurd came to um, slay a dragon and win its treasure. That's a big deal in the Scandinavian sources. Um, there are some hints in the Poetic Edda about Sigurd's family and their doings prior to his birth, and especially that's dealt with in Volsunga Saga. Um, the Edic poems just have some prose summaries that preface the, uh, preface the narrative poems, though we presume that some kinds of poems or even oral prose tales about these matters once existed, and we presume they were available, um, these lost versions of Sigurd's background, we presume they were available to the compositor of Volsunga Saga, since it is that source alone which really offers a detailed backstory to the hero Sigurd and his immediate ancestors, stretching back to the god Odin, who was, the saga tells us, his 
great great grandfather. I think that's the right number of grades. Um, but we'll come back to, back to this. Since Tolkien started his poems in a completely different way than do any of the medieval Scandinavian sources, um, and it's actually kind of significant for what he was doing. Um, thank you, Nelson. We're coming on to um, Volospo now, um, one of the first poem actually in the Codex um, Regius, and. Just as a, a well-known song tells us that to start at the very beginning is a very good place to start, that's exactly what Tolkien does in his first poem in the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, um, which is titled Volsunga Klitha in Nia, or Sigurfar Klitha in Mester, that's the new lay of the Volsungs, or the greatest lay of uh, Sigurd. Um, and it begins with the beginning of the world, um, or the creation of the universe, if you prefer. Icelandic sagas are famous for including extensive backstory on their protagonists, and in, indeed Volsunga Saga, as we've said, does just that for Sigurd by discussing his descent from Odin and the adventures of the intervening ancestors, and we'll talk about those more in our next session. But even Volsunga Saga doesn't go back to the creation of the world. So right from the beginning, Tolkien is giving his version of the legend a very cosmic spin. Um, Tolkien derives the basic elements of his new opening to the legend from authentic Old Norse sources. Indeed, the very explicit and obvious model for Tolkien is the description of the creation world in another Old Norse poem, uh, Volospa, which is found in the Poetic Edda. Like we've said, it's the first poem in that collection. Um, it's called Volospa, uh, Volospa, depending on what pronunciation we're trying to use, something like that. Um, it, it translates essentially as the prophecy of the Sibyl uh, in English or the prophecy of the Cirrus. This poem actually provides an overview of the whole history of the Norse cosmos from creation to destruction and indeed to a new recreation after its destruction. Um, and it's presented essentially, thank you again, Nelson, uh, essentially as the speech of a Sibyl, a prophetess, a Cirrus who looks back to the beginning as well as forward to the end. Now, Tolkien also makes use of a prophetess in his version, in his poems, though he tells uh, of the world's creation and how the Norse gods established their dominion in straight, if highly abbreviated and elusive narrative. Tolkien emphasizes, though, that the world that the gods have wrought out of chaos is hardly safe, and in fact, it is beset by monstrous foes, um, the enemies of gods and men. Um, this for Tolkien was a defining condition of Norse mythology, and indeed I think he believed it generally true for the mythologies of all the Germanic-speaking peoples in pre-Christian times, though we can only very, very dimly glimpse anything of those. Um, but it was that, this was that the gods with, their human, with humans as their allies were locked in struggle with monstrous enemies. The gods had ordered the world, making it fit for life and habitation, but the monsters would disorder it and tear it all back down. Um, and I, when I say the monsters would do this, the sense of future inevitability is meant. This was unavoidable. The monsters would eventually win. They would eventually defeat the gods and destroy the world. The gods and their allies could fight, they could resist, they could delay the world's destruction, but they could not prevent it. This inevitable long defeat for the good guys was what informed Tolkien's theory of what he called northern courage, um, and which he dis discussed extensively in his famous lecture on Beowulf, the monsters and the critics in 1936. Um, the good guys fought to hold back the dark, even in the knowledge that their struggle was ultimately futile. So Tolkien's poems have begun with the creation of the world, but they have only hardly begun with this before we are faced with the premonition of the world's destruction. Tolkien presents the Norse gods wrestling with this dilemma, what should they do? Now Tolkien introduces his Sibyl, 
prophetess, his seer, as he calls her in the poems. And her purpose is not to simply explain the history of the universe as the seeress in Voluspa, um, since Tolkien is already doing that, but to make a specific prediction regarding its fate. The Norse poem Wolespa appears to describe a new world arising after the destruction of the old one, after the final battle of the doomed gods, Ragnarok. Um, Tolkien, however, seems to go one better and suggests that the original world, our world perhaps, can actually be saved from destruction in the last final ba battle between gods and monsters. Um, if, I'm quoting here from Tolkien's uh, poems, if in day of doom, one deathless stands, who death hath tasted and dies no more, the serpent slayer, the um, seed of Odin, then all shall not end, nor earth perish. Well, that's good news, um, but not, I think, a terribly Norse kind of prophecy. Norse myth and legend does have its prophecies, usually in good fairy tale manner about some inescapable doom, uh, like the end of the world, um, or, you know, the don't do this thing or something terrible will happen. And then, of course, somebody does the forbidden thing and the promised terrible results occur. But prophecies of this sort, the only the special chosen one with special characteristics can save the world kind of thing, we don't really get those in Norse mythology. Um, for one thing, the world just doesn't get saved in Norse mythology. But Tolkien is perhaps not just thinking of Norse mythology here. He is mining aspects of it. There are um, Norse poems from the Viking Age that suggest one of the reasons the god Odin is collecting fallen warriors in Valhalla, perhaps even giving them a bit of a nudge to get there, is that he needs the best and the brightest in his supernatural crew to help stave off the end of the world just a little bit longer. Every fallen warrior helps, but of course the greater the fallen hero, the more help they are. So this is perhaps part of the basis of Tolkien's seer's prophecy. Tolkien's chosen one who can save the world as one of Odin's warriors in Valhalla has been killed as a mortal, but is then deathless and dies no more. Well, this fulfills part of that prophecy, but it still basically identifies any of Odin's warriors in Valhalla. The chosen one also needs to be descended from Odin. And then the chosen one also needs to be a dragon slayer because this is kind of a prerequisite for slaying another dragon, the big deal dragon of Norse mythology, the Midgard serpent, which encircles the earth. Um, Nelson, can you nudge me to the next slide, please? Oops, that's the maybe the next one after that. There we go. Lovely picture of Thor and the Midgard serpent from the early 20th century. So in authentic Norse mythology, the Midgard serpent is the special foe of the god Thor. Though there seems to have been variant myths about their combat or combats and the outcome or outcomes. Um, Wollaspa presents Thor and the Midgard serpent as slaying each other in the final battle at the end of the world. Though it seems Tolkien has reserved the slaying of the Midgard serpent for the chosen warrior of his seer's prophecy. Um, similarly, in Middle-earth, as I hope we'll discuss, um, Turin Turambar, um, who very much melds aspects of the Norse Sigurd with Tolkien's other favorite legendary hero, the Finnish Kolervo. Um, anyway, it seems suggested in some versions of Tolkien's mythology that Turin, who had slain the dragon Glaurung, might return from death for the last battle um, to slay Morgoth's greatest of dragons, Ancalagon the Black. Um, it's complicated trying to interpret Tolkien's kind of always shifting mythology. Of course, many of you probably recall the more familiar fate of the dragon Ancalagon, uh, the black being slain by, by Arundel at the end of the first age. Tolkien's legendarium was nothing if not usually a certain amount of flux. 
But in any case, Tolkien's version of the Norse hero Sigurd is very much a prophesied and necessary redeemer of the world. And Tolkien himself emphasized that this motive, motif of the special function of Sigurd is an invention of the present poet, that is of Tolkien himself. Yet the recasting or partial recasting of the Volsung Nibling legends from a medieval focus on conflicting human loyalties to something of a more cosmic sweep is of course not original to Tolkien. Familiar to many is Wagner's refocusing of the legends on the curse created by renouncing love in exchange for wealth and power, a curse ultimately redeemed by the self-sacrifice of the Valkyrie Brunhilde. There's a lot one could say about Wagner's um, approach. Perhaps I'll say a bit more um, if some of you have questions, but um, I'm not going to go deep into Wagner's doings. But in any way, in contrast to Wagner, although William Morris's epic poetic, poetic retelling of these legends had human love and betrayal really at its heart, he, like Tolkien, also sets up the character of Sigurd as a potential, but then for Morris, ultimately failed redeemer of the world. Um, much of Morris's imagery for his Sigurd draws on the conceptions of 19th century scholars about solar heroes. Now, these are not incompatible with Christ-like heroes, but although Morris wove biblical allusions into his Sigurd story, um, Morris's Sigurd was not a Christ allegory. But Tolkien's Sigurd is perhaps coming, becoming dangerously close to being a Christ allegory. He is divinely descended, but mortal and must die so that the world he can then save the world. And scholars have long suspected that Norse, the Norse myth recounted in the poem Volusbao is itself strongly influenced by familiarity with at least Christian mythology and thought. Perhaps for both the Volusbao poet, who may have been a late po pagan poet or an early Christian poet or somewhere in between, perhaps for the poet of Volusbao and for Tolkien, um, the salvation or um, rebirth of the world, depending, um, implied salvation of the pagan world, or at least the destruction of the pagan world and its subsequent rebirth as a Christian world. Um, it's certainly the case if one looks at earlier versions of Tolkien's own Middle Earth mythology, not so much the later version that's in the published Silmarillion from the 1970s, but the earlier versions that you find in the more recently published History of Middle Earth series, you can see that Tolkien was pretty clearly trying to somehow reconcile pagan Germanic and Christian mythology in, at various points. But he later came to distance himself from this almost syncretistic approach, and he considerably toned down the explicit borrowings from pagan mythology and his own mythology later on. Still, the suspiciously Christ-like, um, the suspiciously Christ-like, or at least Christ-implying um, Sigurd in the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun suggests that this was still one of Tolkien's preoccupations in the early 1930s. And we may recall Tolkien's famous debate with Lewis about the veracity of myth, in which Tolkien maintained that even in pagan myths, humans could grasp at aspects of um, the Christian truth as Tolkien saw it, if only um, imperfectly. Um, still, if Tolkien was treating Sigurd in this way, it would be a rather bold experiment. And I think it is perhaps one that Tolkien might have found hard to sustain throughout the complete retelling of the Volsung Nibling cycle in his poems. Um, actually, Nelson, can you pop up the next slide there? It's almost the, almost the last one. Oops. Oh, that is the last one. I thought there was another one. There we go. That's it. Um, and the relationship between Sigurd and Christianity is actually not, you know, unique to Tolkien, although Tolkien's take on it is. Um, he also got, he also pops up in carvings on churches in, 
um, the Middle Ages from around the time when the medieval versions of these legends were being written down, um, perhaps more as a St. Michael allegory, it's hard to say. Um, but anyway, there are ultimately a lot of reasons why the narratives of Sigurd and those around him do not make very good Christian allegory, and perhaps this is part of why Tolkien eventually set these poems aside, part of why he eventually set these poems aside, and indeed backed away generally from his efforts to reconcile Christian and pagan mythology. And perhaps it even influenced his famous, if not entirely genuine, perhaps, dislike of allegory as voiced in the foreword to The Lord of the Rings. Um, speculative ideas, I admit. Um, of course, Tolkien's Catholic faith would remain a strong thread that runs through all his fiction, and likewise his use of elements drawn from myth and legend, um, notably Norse myth and legend. But certainly after the poems of, of Sigurd and Gudrun, we don't see him so much trying to consciously reconcile these two things. They become individually rather elements in Tolkien's creative vocabulary that he would use when telling his own more original stories. But all that was yet to come while Tolkien was working on his Volsung Nibelung cycle uh, of poems about Sigurd, Dragon Slayer, and in Tolkien's version, Prophesied Redeemer of the Universe. And in these, so far as we have explored just their openings so far, although the world seems doomed from the beginning, the god Odin can, um, in defiance of actual Norse mythology, perhaps arrange its salvation um, by ensuring his force of fallen but now deathless heroes in Valhalla includes someone who is descended from himself and has slain a dragon. So Odin needs to get busy in more ways than one. How does all this play out? Well, that's going to be the rest of the story. Um, and for reasons of time, we'll um, probably need to pause here for today and look at connections, but we'll take up um, the story, Tolkien's version and um, its medieval antecedents in the next session. I think that's probably probably where we uh, can probably pause now. Um, I think we've got 20 minutes left and we can look back perhaps uh, at the questions that have been popping up. Um, I don't know if, uh, I'll just scroll back to the questions here and go through them. Um, are there any particular excerpts of this we should read in advance? Um, well, um, today we've just started the, the beginning, the first section, um, the Uphaf as it is in Tolkien's version. Um, I think we'll probably get through, um, in our next session, we'll probably talk about other parts of the story up to probably at least um, Sigurd's meeting with Brynhild. Uh, and then um, we might deal with Sigurd's um, death and then the, the fallout and, and Gudrun's revenge in the last section. So you can kind of keep up there. Um, they're not hugely long. I think the first poem is about 300-something, um, 330-ish stanzas, eight-line stanzas. Um, but Tolkien's, Tolkien's version is, is really, really quite compressed. So you might want to look at, a, a say, a summary of Volsunga Saga, if you can find one. Um, online and, and get sort of a, an overview of the whole story. Or I think actually Chris Tolkien in his commentary summarizes a lot of the story, including some of the details that Tolkien leaves out. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien left out of the poems, so you can get a little um, better sense there. So I'm just skipping past all the questions where we we're having trouble with the slides and the audio. Audio came back. Early national philosophers were interested in origins of things. Yeah, um, Joe Hoffman asks, um, they were interested in roots and beginnings. Are you supposed to be thinking of Gollum there? Yeah, a little bit. That's a deliberate Gollum reference. Um, uh, it's one that I think Thomas Shippey takes up in one of his uh, books or writings too. Um, Tolkien, of course, was also interested in roots and beginnings, but, um, but not just roots and beginnings. Um, 
the story as well. And it was too easy to get away from the story uh, back in the back in the day. So webcams back, slides changed, some more problems. Slides just skipping past all the kinds of comments. Just slides are gone. I think Nelson was a better better manager of the slides than my software allowed me to be. Andrew Lang's Red Fairy book, freely available on Project Gutenberg. Yes, um, there's also a nice um, edition and translation of Volsunga Saga available from the Viking Society's website. Um, lots of versions uh, in different translations of the Poetic Edda online. Slides disappearing again. Okay, Nelson trying to talk to me, but I couldn't hear. Yeah, I couldn't hear you, Nelson, if you were saying anything. Can't hear you now if you're saying anything. Um, I don't know if one or the other of us is muted. Hopefully I'm not muted. Uh, Morris editions are available. Yeah, Morris's translation of Olsunga Saga, which is what Tolkien would have read um, as well, and Andrew Lang's fairy books, and also Morris's epic uh, poem based on the story is all available freely online because it's pretty old, all out of copyright. Um, Shippy's article on the problem of the rings. Yes, definitely a good introduction to um, Tolkien and Wagner there, Timothy. Roots and Branches is the title of the book. Yes, uh, problem of the rings is, is kind of the, the title of the particular chapter or article. Kaiden's question about Volsunga Saga and the Eddic poems. I think I remember dealing with that one. So here we go. I think I'm picking up here. Um, is it likely um, Halstein... I, that looks like a, a marvelous Norwegian name, which I would mangle, Sjöli. Uh, um, is it likely that the skalds made their own versions of the story based on some generally known persons and subjects? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, we're talking about a history of, of hundreds of years that the legends must have been kicking around um, before the major versions that we have were written down. Um, so people were making use of these poems and telling them in different ways. They're probably, you know, it wasn't like, I think you could go out and get the collected works of the Volsung Nibling legends back in the Viking age. Um, some of the Eddic poems are relatively, were probably relatively fixed texts. They, um, or possibly some of the poems that were lost. So they might've been composed and then people learned them perhaps largely through memorization, but in a preliterate period, it would be early to, uh, it would be easy to, to for them to change and, and bits to be forgotten or something like that. Um, it's hard to talk about fixed texts before really the versions that we have. I'm not sure there were very many. It's even hard to talk about, I think, like kind of lengthy um, versions, comprehensive versions. And I think really in the 13th century, when these were being written down, when people had the model the technological model of writing and, and literature that came from Latin Christian literary traditions, that's when people were really trying to do what the Volsunga author was doing and taking all these versions which existed. The story was sort of scattered across different poems and you knew it in through different poems or through different people's retellings of it and he was trying to weld it all together to create a lengthy literary version. Um, I think that's when that was happening. So. Yeah, I think people were generally um, telling and retelling in different ways and sometimes in more formalized and fixed ways, sometimes uh, less. And, you know, people from different parts of uh, dramatic speaking Europe were talking to each other. It was a, a really, I, I love, I like to use the model, actually, this might sound a bit crazy. I like to use the model of the, the Marvel universe or the DC universe, you know, where 
we know that there's a tradition of the stories evolving. Um, they happen in comic books. They happen in TV shows and Saturday morning kids cartoons. They happen in, you know, feature films. Um, characters um, appear in each other's timelines. Timelines change. There's this version. There's that version. We recognize it all as belonging to the Marvel universe or the DC universe, um, but it's hard to pin down one particular version. And even when the owners of the materials um, go back and try to create a canonical version, um, it's hard because they're so contradictory, at least in details. So that's the way I tend to think of this kind of material. <laughs> Very modern, I suppose. Um, moving on, question about Gunnar. We dealt with that one. Um, the Sigurd, uh, Siegfried cycle, this is uh, Timothy again. Uh, being, it strikes me as being comparable in import for Germanic and Scandinavians as the Arthur cycle and all its complexity for the English and Americans. Possibly, um, although of course remember that originally the, well, the Arthur cycle itself actually becomes probably most important slightly before this stuff gets written down. Um, Geoffrey of Monmouth is the big popularizer of Arthur. Obviously some kind of Arthurian tradition existed before Geoffrey of Monmouth in what the beginning of the 12th century was Geoffrey of Monmouth. And, but you know, he really popularizes it and then it becomes this big thing with lots of new versions appearing um, in, in France and Germany and so forth. Um, but there, there is a, there is a, you can kind of compare that. Um, Volusbau prophecy of the, of the uh, Vola. Yes. Um, Turin is also supposed to slay Morgoth in one of the version, um, talking about Turin slaying um, dragons and or Morgoth. Yeah, um, Arendelle slays Ancalagon, Turin might slay Ancalagon the Black, um, Turin slays Morgoth, Turin does or does not come back from the dead. The last battle is the battle at the end of the first age or alternatively the battle at the end of the world. Um, it's all a little bit complicated there. Tolkien did not invent, uh, to Timothy and Tolkien did not invent Sigurd as savior, uh, along with Brynhild Wagner did um, as Morris. Wagner is more of a Christ figure, has to die to teach Brynhild to be a knowing, um, knowing wise. Yeah, um, but Sigurd I don't think makes it, well, I don't know, people can disagree. I don't want to really go into Wagner. I don't really think of, of, of Sigurd as the redeemer, the savior in Wagner. Um, it's, I think it's more Brynhild, uh, Brynhilde uh, in Wagner's version. Um, but you know, but like we say, Morris also um, was 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 toying with the idea of Sigurd as a kind of redeemer, who eventually um, is not a redeemer. Uh, it doesn't really work out in Morris's version. Um, but no, Tuglin didn't entirely invent that them himself. But I think again, um, and this is something Tom Shippey brings up with relation, you know, relationship to Tolkien's views on things like. Wagner and even Shakespeare and, and Spencer's Fairy Queen and stuff like that. Um, I think the quote is something like, they were onto something very important, wrote, wrote Tom Shippey, um, but they, they, they messed it up. They hadn't got it quite right. Um, they didn't understand it as well as Tolkien did. Um, they were amateurs. <laughs> Tolkien was a proper philologist and he knew how it should all be played out and he was going to do it and set it right. And I think there's an extent to what, um, to, what he, that's what he's doing in the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, and we could argue um, in the rest of his legendarium and, and Lord of the Rings. Um, I thought it was St. George who slayed the dragon, says Tony Mead. Um, yes, St. George does slay the dragon, and Sigurd, and Beowulf, and lots of people in Indo-Iradian myth and legend. We'll have a chance to talk about dragon slaying at least a little bit more um, in our future session where we deal with um, 
Sigurd and Fafner in this story. Um, but it's a it's a widespread um, myth, really, the dragon slaying myth. It comes, it's common to Indo-European traditions and appears in the Middle East and even in, in um, some Far East traditions, pops up in, in Japanese and other things. Um, and it drifts into the folktale world and then all bets are off. Uh, ah, Richard, you managed to join us, had the wrong webinar link. Yeah, I think there was an old webinar link and then it was replaced by um, this new one. Hopefully you're all on, on board now. Um, coming along, Timothy again, is there any theory why all of this came into written form in the 13th century? Because liter uh, literacy was finally uh, in the West becoming common. Yeah, I think that's essentially it. Um, there was, um, and I'm more familiar with the Old Norse world than the continental Germanic world, but I think it's, it's at least broadly um, similar. Um, you certainly had by, you know, the 11th, uh, the 11th century, I mean, the German, continental German-speaking world had been Christianized well before, but in Scandinavia, at least, by the 11th century, you had um, a lot of, um, that's when a lot of the conversion to Christianity took place. So through the sort of later 11th and 12th centuries, you had a lot of exposure to Latinate literacy. And then for various reasons, which, again, we probably don't have time to discuss here, um, Scandinavia, especially in the West Norse area, and then especially Iceland, started to develop vernacular literature. And it was really just by the 13th century, it's probably really a little bit before the 13th century that, that people started writing um, stuff down. But most of the stuff we have survives from the 13th century. And um, certainly for the purposes of the Volsung Niebling cycle, I think most of the, the Scandinavian versions were being first written down in the 13th century. Perhaps not quite the versions we know might not have been quite the original versions, but they're close to the original written versions at, at the very worst. Uh, it's Wagner who invents the term Vala for his ring prophetess, Erda. Yeah, um, another possible um, Wagner Tolkien connection. Well, Wagner and Tolkien were both drawing on largely the Scandinavian versions um, of these legends. Um, there was just more material to work with in the Scandinavian versions than the German version, the Nibelungenlied, although Wagner did make use of that as well. Um, and so you've got a prophetess, you've got, you know, Voluspau, which is a really impressive Old Norse poem. It's widely regarded as one of the best of the Eddic poems. Um, and certainly, you know, if, if, if nothing else, it contains that whole overview of the Norse cosmos. So um, they're for, certainly both drawing on the same things. Um, well, uh, does Vala go back before Wagner? Well, the Old Norse um, Volusval, that's a that's the genitive form Volu. It's a um, Volva is the is the um, the Old Norse term for a prophetess or a seeress. Um, so I think Wagner is kind of grabbing on to a bit of that and then making it a bit more pronounceable um, for his his purposes, perhaps. Um, 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 Vulva is an interesting word, actually, the word for prophetess. It, it ends up being combined in, just really an aside, in modern Icelandic, the word for computer combines the word for um, counting, tala, with the word for um, vulva, prophetess. It's a counting prophetess, so it's a tova. I think that's the word for computer in modern Icelandic, perhaps someone can uh, reassure me on that. So, wow, I think... Um, I've gone through most of the questions. We've got a minute or two left. I'm told we have to end 
um, very punctually on or just before the hour because um, Signum is going to be using this this webinar channel for another purpose at that time. But we've got a few minutes um, left at least in which we could take some more questions. Um, feel feel free to throw anything out here. I think I've caught all the questions that came in earlier. My questions. Ah, uh, Tony Mead asks, um, why do you think it was in Iceland that, that lit this literature was preserved instead of mainland Scandinavia? Um, that's a good question. It was certainly known, I think, in mainland Scandinavia. Um, for example, we'll bring this up next time. There are some runic, uh, runic inscriptions from, I think, 11th century Sweden, um, Södermanland, I think, that show familiarity with, it, with what is very obviously a, an episode from or related to these legends. Um, the iconography is really so so specific and so detailed that uh, you know, it shows part of the, the, the dragon slaying episode, really. Um, so they were certainly known. Um, why were things preserved in Iceland instead of elsewhere? And why did Iceland end up with a, um, a particularly strong vernacular literature pr tradition in the Middle Ages when, when this was not very common? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think there are a number of factors that probably played in there. Um, one of them actually has to do with the the kind of um, monastic and clerical foundations that existed in Western Scandinavia as opposed to Eastern Scandinavia. They were actually different um, houses. I'm trying to remember now. I have some notes on this somewhere. Um, there were Cistercians and somebody else. Um, give me a moment and I will find this because I have some notes on this. Um, here we go. Right. So it was in Eastern Scandinavia East Scandinavia, um, Sweden, Denmark, um, where most of the monastic foundations, the early ones, were Cistercians. And they didn't really encourage writing of manuscripts, except for very, very pious purposes. Um, you know, proper religious literature, copies of, of um, the Bible, and so forth. And then I'm just trying to check my notes again and see, uh, in I think in Western Scandinavia, um, Norway, and then also in Iceland, it was mostly um, Augustinian monastic foundations, uh, and they were much more into um, writing all kinds of manuscripts, I think. So that's one of the reasons. Um, also in, in, um, in Iceland itself, um, it was a little bit of a different kind of political religious situation. So in Iceland, a lot of the aristocracy. I mean, there wasn't a, a traditional, you know, nobility, er, er, there was an aristocracy, but it wasn't, you know, kings and their retainers and so forth. It was, you know, wealthy landed farmers, um, estate holders, you might say. And a lot of them 
became the um, part of the early church or, or, or controlled um, the early Christian church in Iceland. And I think they were very, very interested in um, maintaining, they were very, very interested in, in, in talking about their, their backgrounds and their history. Um, and the Norwegian kings were also, the Norwegian kings, you know, claimed descent from Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, for example, um, and cl you claim descent from ancient heroes and ancient kings. And, and I think in Iceland, this, because there wasn't a, a sort of royal nobility structure, um, the, the chieftains, who were sometimes also the priests, or at least trained in, in monasteries, for example, Snorri Sturluson wasn't a priest, but he was, I think, um, trained in a monastery. Um, so you had this, this, this very, um, I mean, uh, the church was pretty aristocratic everywhere, but I think the particular situation in Iceland where the top level of society were these estate holding farmers who were interested in preserving them, you know, preserving themselves. Icelanders already had a, rep uh, a reputation as preservers of tradition, as the skaldic poets, etc. Um, and I think they kind of transferred that into writing. So some, a combination, a little bit of a perfect storm, perhaps, um, helped Iceland become this, this center of literary tradition. Um, and a good thing for us that it did, um, and that everything stayed out there. Um, you know, some of these manuscripts were, you know, just stashed away in farmhouses and so forth until the rest of um, Scandinavia became excited about finding them um, later on in the early modern period. That's the, the Codex Regius, um, where the Poetic Edda was preserved, is, is the King's Codex, because it got eventually shipped off as a present to the King of Denmark and stayed in Denmark for a long time. I think the manuscript is back in Iceland now. Um, so there we go, everyone. I think we probably need to wrap up because the rest of uh, Signum is coming in to do something else with this channel. Um, I definitely like to thank uh, all of you who joined in and uh, who found the right link and who um, held on with us to our difficulties with audio and slides at the beginning. I think next time I'll just get Nelson to make to run all the slides for me um, from from the start. That'll probably work out better. So I think our next session for this seminar series is on, next one is on May 2nd, if I am remembering correctly. One thing that's not in my notes, even though Augustinians and Cistercians are. Um, and then the third one will be on May 4th, um, same bat time, same bat channel here. So thank you all again. I don't know, Nelson, if you're still out there. I can't I hear am. you. I don't I think, think you can hear me, though. In charge of the session. Oh. You can't hear me, but thank you very much anyway. But, uh, in any case, we'll have to go off the air shortly. So thank you all again, and um, see you soon, hopefully. Yeah.